It has been the tradition of the church uh, that when the gospel reading is read, uh, that the priest would ask the people to stand and then read the gospel for the day. And at the end, the priest would say the word of the Lord and the people would respond. They would say, they would say, thanks be to God. We've got that. Would you rise for the reading of the gospel? From St. John chapter the 20th. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She went running to Simon Peter and to the disciple that Jesus loved and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And that's how the gospel story starts. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Two thousand years. This story has been being told, but ten days ago, I uh, I taught our confirmation class, 130 plus ninth graders, about the resurrection. I had 15 minutes to answer all their questions about the resurrection. It felt like 15 hours to both of us. But you know what? Part of that is because this story, when you're hearing it and you're just learning to think about it like a young adult, it's a confusing, confusing story. The Easter stories are filled with people who get confused. Mary thinks that Jesus' body has been stolen. Peter sees the burial cloths and can't work out what's happening. The disciples are confused by the scriptures. The angels ask questions of the women, and they still don't know what's going on. And then Mary sees Jesus and thinks that he's the gardener. The same day, two disciples are walking to another town, and they walk with Jesus for miles, telling him all about Jesus. And they don't recognize him until they sit down for dinner. It's hard to get more confused and more confusion into a couple paragraphs than this. Whatever this story is about, it is not a smoothed out, everything woven together fairy tale. And that's the point. It's meant to be confusing. Easter bursts into the world of space and time and matter. Into the world of real life and real people and real history. But our minds and our imaginations are too small to contain it. So we do our best to put the sea back into the bottle to contain the explosion of the resurrection into shapes that we already understand. Jesus' followers weren't prepared for him to come back to life. Nobody would be. And ever since... People have tried to squish this incredible message, living guy, dead guy, living guy, into boxes that just won't fit. These ninth graders are growing up in an age of religious conflict, a clash not just of nations or civilizations, but of religion. 
And the temptation is that they hear politicians say that we need to make all other religions enemies. And they hear educators say, we need to make all other religions the same. No wonder they're confused. Bishop Wright was appalled by an op-ed that he read in the Times on Good Friday. The author wrote, the Easter message is one that everybody can sign up to. Good Friday commemorates sacrifice, the giving of oneself as a martyr for the love of other people. And Easter is about the achievement of victory through suffering. These are universal spiritual truths, the writer went on. And the more the different faiths interact with beliefs of others, the clearer it is that they're all common. So the Easter message draws the devout, draws the devout together from all religions. From suffering, goodness can triumph. Death is not final. And then there is a last terrible sentence. That's what all the faiths in this country can proclaim and can come together for this weekend. I just think that sounds so reasonable. And I just believe that it is so wrong. I, I think in some ways it's a lie. You don't achieve anything. You especially don't get peace by downplaying the uniqueness of the message of Easter. So I told these ninth graders, I'm sorry guys, this is one place where it's all or nothing. It's either true or it's a lie. It's not everything meets in the middle. But how do you prove it? How do you prove to ninth graders or 29th graders whether the resurrection happened? It's, it's all about facts for us, isn't it? We're a culture that thrives on facts. And so I had to remind the, the kids that there are different kinds of facts. The one that we usually think of, is it true, we mean is it a fact? And by is it a fact, we mean is it scientific? Science says that the way you can tell the law of gravity exists is to let go of the book. Does it fall? Well, let's see. Maybe that was just a fluke. Maybe the law of gravity isn't really a law. It's not an opinion, is it? Every time I drop this, it'll fall. Science produces facts by repeating the same thing and saying if it happens again, it's true. But is that the only kind of fact that we believe in? I think that there are facts that cannot be duplicated in a lab or ever again. I think that's why history is also about facts. How many of you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? This is not a trick question. I am. None of you in this room ever saw George Washington walk. None of you ever heard his voice. The reason that you believe that this is a fact is because you measure the impact of this life and you believe that it's true. So I told the kids, I was nudged to believe that the resurrection happened. When I didn't believe it at first, I was nudged to believe it by three history facts. And the first one was because the story itself was so different, the people who were the witnesses, who actually saw this happen, wrote it down. 
That's so different than what happens with Alexander the Great. It's years before it's written down. It's centuries before the stories about the Trojan War are written down. But within 15 or 20 years of the death of Jesus, eyewitnesses are saying this is what happened. Paul writes to some followers in Greece and says, I passed on what I received as the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's name, and then to the 12. And after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. Though some have fallen asleep. Then Jesus appeared to James, then the other apostles, and last of all, Jesus appeared to me like somebody born at the wrong time. So if Christ has been raised, I'm sorry, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and your faith is foolish. More than that, we're exposed as liars about God because we've testified that God raised Christ from the dead and we saw it. Now, this is one of those things that's important to realize that you can trick somebody into believing a lie. You can make people do terrible things even if it's not true. You can get somebody, I bet you could get somebody to strap explosives to their chest and to walk into a bus station and blow themselves up, even if it's a lie. But nobody is willing to die for what they know is a lie. There's a big difference between being tricked and a bunch of people who said, all you have to do is say that He didn't rise from the dead. Well, I'd I'd love to say that, but he rose from the dead. (laughs) Next. Nobody dies for a lie. The second thing that nudged me into believing that Jesus rose from the dead is how unlikely the story is. This is a crazy story. How unlikely it is that a crazy story would change the world when there are so many other revolutions and social movements and cults that are growing up all around Jesus at exactly the same time. Why would this one crazy story survive? When Jesus' first followers get arrested, it says, an honored Jewish leader named Gamaliel stood up in the Jewish Supreme Court and ordered that the apostles be put outside. And then he addressed the court, Israel, consider carefully what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 people rallied to him, but he was killed, and all of his followers dispersed. It was nothing. And the last time we took a census, Judas the Galilean led a revolt. He was killed too. And all his followers ran away. So I advise you, let these men go. If their movement is just human, it will fail. But if this is from God, you won't be able to stop them. You'll just find yourselves fighting against God. Well, the Jewish leaders listened to Gamaliel. They let the apostles go. They beat him up, said, shut up. 
And the men went out, and the world was turned upside down. How unlikely is that? But if I only had one argument, I would have told the ninth grade kids the reason that I believe that that the tomb was empty and that Jesus is alive is it's the only way I can account for how lives get turned upside down, how people change so much. Just weeks before these events happened, Peter was saying, you and me, all the way, all the disciples were saying, he's going to be king, we're going to be princes. When it comes to the crucifixion and the trial, all of his followers ran away. Peter, the big mug, denies Jesus three times, and they're terrified, and they're hiding. And just 50 days later, they're talking to thousands of people. They're talking to thousands of people, and then they defend themselves to the leaders of the country. It says, Peter said, leaders and all of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And when the leaders saw the courage, not the cowardice, the courage of Peter and John, and realized these were the same ordinary, unschooled, ignorant men that had run away, they took note that these men had been with Jesus, and they were astonished. That's the acid test. Will we still be marked by the same courage and bold love so that other people are astonished at the change in us? And they might take note that we have been with Jesus. Will we be with the lost and the least and the left behind? Will we bring life and justice and hope into this world? Every year as I prepare the Easter sermon, I read the commentaries and I'm amazed at how many scholars wrestle with the big, did it really happen? And maybe that's your question too. Did he really rise from the dead? Is that your question? If only it happened today, you wish, because we would have CNN right on the spot there to catch it on tape, right? Probably, if you could get it in before the commercial, they would do an interview. They might even ask Jesus if he'd stop for a selfie. It, it, it could happen. <laughs> we would run DNA tests to make sure it was the same guy, and then we think we'd, we'd know it for sure. But that misses the point. I do believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. The Gallup poll claims that 87% of American Christians last year believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So that's not the real question, is it? For most people, the more interesting survey question is, what difference does it make that Jesus is risen? What difference does Easter make when you walk into your office or your classroom next week? What difference does it make in your family? What difference does it make when you struggle to find hope because your plans are failing 
or you're lonely, or you're sick, or you're discouraged, when you're unsure if life matters. The real question of Easter is not, do you believe that he's risen? It's, do you believe that this risen God is involved in your life? Do you believe he's with you? See, a risen Jesus changes our view of life and death. Lots of you have lost people that you love and you miss them and you grieve. But those who believe that risen Jesus exists don't fear that life ends with death. There's no view anymore that the person with the most toys wins the game because the game keeps going. A risen Jesus changes our view of how God looks at us. After Easter, no matter how you have screwed up, there is no longer any doubt how much God loves you, to what lengths God will go to rescue you, what God's claim is on us. In this story, in the gospel story that you stood for today, the angel finishes by telling Mary that she should talk to Jesus' followers and say, he has been raised from the dead. He is going ahead of you to the Galilee. You will see him there. If you're having trouble today, seeing that the risen Savior is involved in your life, listen to the angel directing you to go back home, to go back to your Galilee, go back to work, go back to school, go to the ordinary places, go to the routine, go back to a world that just doesn't have hope. That is where you find the risen Jesus at work. In the words of the angel, he's gone ahead of you, you will see him there. He'll fill the ordinary with mystery, He'll come to the impossible and walk through it with you. It will be miraculous. You will find our God create a future filled with meaning that only a Savior could have planned. My, uh, my good friend has become the president of Princeton Seminary, Craig Barnes. And Craig told us that we should end Easter sermons this way by saying, what you believe about the end of that story determines how you will live the rest of your story. What you believe about the resurrection story determines how you will live the rest of your story. Did Jesus rise from the dead? There's hope for you because the Savior is waiting up ahead and you will see him. Lord Jesus, I thank you that that is true. I thank you that all around the world, followers of yours in Syria and in Iraq and in Palestine and in the Congo and on the north side of Minneapolis and right here, all over the world, people are paying a huge price for saying that he is risen he is risen indeed and living like you will meet us again. I ask you this day to persuade the doubting, to encourage the hurting, and to walk right in front of us 
that we might follow you and share your love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, amen.